want to invite you, if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to go to the New Testament, and we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I know you can use the uh, Church Center app, and they've got the scriptures and, and uh, there that you can follow along, and uh, I'd invite you to do that. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read uh, verses 15 through 21 as the text this morning, and we're going to talk a little bit about the love of God, the gospel, and how that is the basis for our salvation. That's how we're forgiven and how it ought to be the motivation for our life of following Jesus. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, we're going to start reading in verse 14, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter, verse number 21. And you follow along with me as I read. The Bible says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, how can we cleanse our way? By taking heed to your word. And so, Lord, I pray now that you'll help us to see from your word what you'd have us to see. May we learn, may we grow. We don't just want to be challenged, we want to be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. The gospel, or the love of Christ, as it was demonstrated to us through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his death, his resurrection, that is the basis for our salvation. That is how we are forgiven. And it ought to also be the primary motivation for a life of following Jesus. This is the lesson, or one of the lessons, some of the lessons that I believe these verses are trying to teach us. Now to get the full weight of what we're reading, right, it's important to have a little bit of context. The book we call 2 Corinthians is a letter. It was written by a man named Paul to Jesus' followers in, a, in an ancient city called Corinth. And Corinth had uh, been a place that Paul had traveled to. He'd preached the gospel there. People had believed and a church had been established, a community of believers. And Paul eventually left, and after he left, he began to hear reports of some problems in the church. And so Paul wanted to address some of those problems, and he wrote another letter we call 1 Corinthians. And if you were to read and study 1 Corinthians, what you'd see is that Paul addresses each major issue, right? There's division, there's sexual sin. He addresses these issues and he brings to each issue the gospel. He says, what's missing for you is a full appreciation of what Christ has done for you, right? Because uh, you're, what you're suffering from is gospel deficiency, right? You don't have enough of, a, of an awe and a wonder for the love of God. That would change some of the things that are happening. Now, he writes this letter, and initially, a majority of the Christians at Corinth resist Paul's teaching, right? They don't respond well to what he writes. And the, one of the big reasons why is because they had started to look down on Paul. They had started to question his calling as an apostle and as a preacher. And not for good reasons. They had started to question it 
for very superficial reasons, right? Paul's poor. He's a tent maker. He has, uh, he's not as uh, dynamic of a speaker, right? Bad reasons, but that was the reason. Paul eventually had to go to Corinth. He traveled a second time, and he went to Corinth, and he addressed these problems. And as he addresses these uh, issues in person, he eventually leaves again, and there's a little bit more communication, but then he writes this letter we call 2 Corinthians. And what's important to understand is that he starts this letter, really from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 7, what he's doing is addressing that that issue where they said, we're not going to listen to you because we don't think you have any authority anymore. And so what he does is he defends his apostleship. He defends his calling as a preacher of the gospel. But his defense is not on the basis of anything that he does. It's not anything that he offers. His defense, he said, the reason that I'm an apostle and a preacher is because Jesus did that for me. My calling is because of the gospel. It's not because of anything I bring to the table. It's because of what Jesus has done for me. And so he defends his position as an apostle and a preacher. So when we read Paul write, the love of Christ constraineth us, what he's saying is, my calling is a calling from God, and it's because of his love for me. Nothing you say about me is going to discourage me from doing what I've been called to do, because he died for me, he was buried and rose again for me, and so I am going to be what he has called me to be. And that ought to be the heart of each and every follower of Jesus. The gospel is the basis for our salvation. It's where we find forgiveness and hope, and it ought to be what motivates us. When I ask you, why do you do what you do for God, whether it's church, whether it's service, whether it's living out a life of obedience to his word, what ought to motivate us is the gospel. So let's think about the the love of Christ in these two ways. And I want to be comforted, but I also want to be challenged and changed through the word, right? So the gospel as the basis for our salvation. Verse number 14, we read this phrase, one died for all. And then we read again, and he died for all. The death of Christ on the cross, that's the once for all sacrifice that was needed because of sin. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 10, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Why was a sacrifice for sin necessary? Because sin separates And if we're going to have peace with God, if we're going to be reconciled to God, the way Paul puts it, then our sin has to be taken care of. Now, Paul writes a lot about this in another letter that he wrote. That's also in our Bibles. We call it Romans. And in one section in particular, right, if you find it in chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, he lays this out beautifully, right? The Bible says this, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This idea of being reconciled to God, having peace with God through faith in Jesus. Uh, this same idea we just read in our, in our, in our passage in, in 2 Corinthians. What does he say beginning in verse number 18? And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you know this is the need of every human heart to be made righteous. 
Not moral first. You need to be made righteous. You don't need to clean up your act. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. What you need first is to be made righteous. Only God can do that for you. There's nothing you can do to become righteous. Even our own efforts to be righteous, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. What we need first is to be made righteous. Paul had experienced this in his own life. There was a time where Paul put his faith in himself and in the works that he did to get him to God. And one of those works was persecuting Christians, physically persecuting people who believed in Jesus. He believed he was doing the work of God. And he was literally on the road traveling to do that very thing. And he came face to face with Jesus. And Jesus called him by name. And his life would never be the same. You can read Paul's conversion story in Acts chapter number 9. Amazing story. And God changed him on that day. Years later, when writing another letter to a young preacher named Timothy, he describes what God did for him. And it's powerful, right? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Let me read this for you. The Bible says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should henceforth believe on him to everlasting life. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's a testimony. And if we can put it as simply as we can, he said, if God can save me, he can save anybody. If he's got enough mercy for me, he has enough mercy for you. If all that I've done, his grace is sufficient for. All that you've done, his grace is sufficient for. He said, people living at that time would have known me as a violent persecutor of the church. And they would think to themselves, if God can change him, he can change me. And if you're here this morning, and maybe it's the first time in a long time you've been in church. Maybe you've heard some of the things that I'm saying, but you never really thought, that's for me. Or maybe you're like, you've come to a place where you think, I'm kind of beyond hope, right? It's just too much. The debt is too great, right? Or maybe like Paul, you don't think you need God. Maybe you, you're trusting in yourself. I don't know where you're at in your journey, but I do know this. You're not outside the reach of God's love. If you'll believe, you can be saved. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And if you'll believe, if you're here this morning and as you hear what the scriptures have to say about you and about your sin and about the Savior, and you feel a sense of need, I believe that's the Holy Spirit of God convicting you. You need to be saved. And may today be a day of salvation. And what a wonderful thing it would be 
If you could say like Paul, don't you love that verse at the end of that passage in Timothy? Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever, amen. That could be your testimony. He is worthy of that kind of praise. And he'll save you and you can follow him with the rest of your life if you'll believe. Don't leave here today if you don't know Christ. May today be a day of salvation. The gospel, the death of Christ, it is the basis for our salvation. But not only that, it is to be the primary or should be the primary motivation for a life of following Jesus. What does Paul say the response to the death and resurrection of Christ ought to be? That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He said, now that I've been saved, now that God has changed my life through his love, I want to follow him. I want to live for Jesus. I want to be obedient and faithful to his revealed truth. I want to reflect his character in my life. And what does Paul say is the motivation for that service? The love of Christ constraineth us. What has, what, what, if you were to ask Paul, what do you do what you do? He says, because God loves me. And that ought to be what you, why you do what you do for God. Because he loves you. Because of his grace. You say, isn't that sort of basic? I mean, what else would we be motivated by? in our service for God. But the truth is, a lot of Christians are motivated by lesser things. A lot of Christians have, at the, at the heart of what they do for God, lesser things than his love for them. There's things like pride, things like shame and guilt and fear. These are just some of the lesser motivations that people have, that they do the things they do for God. And you know what's subtle about bad motivations? Is instead of our, our goal to be to bring glory to God, and to be obedient to him, all of a sudden, whether we realize it or not, the goal becomes something different. Whether it's because of pride, it becomes your own glory. Whether it's because of, of guilt and shame, it becomes your own righteousness. All of a sudden, instead of pursuing after what we thought we were pursuing after, we're pursuing after something less because it's not the love of God. You say, well, how can I know if I'm being primarily motivated by God's love for me? Now, listen, you can't be perfect in this. I can't be perfect in this, but you can get better. You can grow, right? You can be different in a year from now than you are right now. The extent to which God's love motivates your service for him can be greater. There's so much that we could say, so many places we could go. But in our text, we have some answers to this question. How can I know? It's the love of God that motivates me. Two examples in verses 16 through 21 of what it looks like practically in a life that is motivated by the love of Christ. Let's see these together. First, when we're primarily motivated by the love of God... Inner transformation is more significant than outward appearance. Inner transformation is more significant than outward appearance. Let me read verse 16 for you again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Remember we said that the Corinthians had started to look down on Paul? They had become fixated on what they could see. Right? For them, it was all about what they could, uh, uh, what they could uh, qualify with their own eyes. And so Paul didn't look like what an apostle was supposed to look like. That was his problem for them. And see, Paul had lived this kind of life before. There was a time where he would have judged whether or not somebody was close to God based on things that he could observe about them with his own eyes. He said, this is how I used to think about people, but not anymore. When he says, wherefore, what he means is after salvation after the, the change from the gospel. Wherefore, henceforth, 
no, we know man out of the flesh. He said, I don't, I don't judge first and foremost by the things that I can see. Right? He said, I even looked at Jesus that way. He said, I even looked at Jesus that way, but we don't look, we don't look at Jesus the same way anymore. We don't look at people the same way anymore. What we're interested in is the inside, the work that Christ wants to do on the inside that works this way to the outside. He talks about this earlier in the chapter. I want to read one verse for you, verse number 12. He says, for we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. He said, some of you so badly want to have something about me that you can say, look at that. That's amazing. He said, here's something you can glory in about me. He changed my heart. You want to have something to glory about me? He changed me from the inside. He said, I know you're looking for stuff about appearance, but how about the heart? What was the change? Verse number 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Salvation is a change. It starts on the inside. It works its way to the outside. And following Jesus in this life is about a process of letting God work that miracle from the inside out. We say uh, inner transformation more significant because we don't want to imply that outward appearance is insignificant because it's not. And when you're changed from the inside, it'll show up in the way that you live your life. But the sequence has to be inside out. It can't be outside in. If you had a friend that told you, I've been, um, we're, I, I got this, I have this house and I renovated this house and I want you to come see because I'm all done. And you were to show up and the first thing you see, nice manicured lawn, some of you, amen about that, right? And everything's so beautiful and the paint's all nice and look at that porch and look at that door and you're walking up and you're thinking, this is the house I'd like to live in. And they swing the door open and it's a disaster. Nothing on the inside is done. You say, I thought you said you were done with this house. Well, yeah, but I mean, we really, we did so much on the outside, we couldn't really get to the inside. And if you were honest with your friend, you'd say, well, it's, it's beautiful. But if the inside isn't finished, then it can't function like a house is supposed to function. If you have to choose inside, outside, I think you should start on the inside and work your way out. And that is how God intends for it to be in our life. It's not about just doing whatever we want. When he transforms us, he'll change us. But it's allowing that work to take place. You put so much pressure on yourself. Some, when we talk about bad motivation, some live with so much guilt and so much shame because you don't measure up to what you have come to believe a Christian is supposed to be. Guess what? None of us measure up. That's why Jesus died. That's why he was buried and rose again because we all fall short. When you're motivated primarily by guilt and shame because you don't measure up, you get discouraged. Some of us are motivated by pride. You want to know why? Because we've decided what a good Christian looks like. And so my goal is to look like that. And I look down on people who don't look like that. And whether you realize it or not, it's not, the right, it's not rejoicing in the righteousness of Christ that's motivating you. It's your own righteousness that's motivating you. Whether it's guilt, whether it's pride, the problem is always the same. We end up discouraged. You want to know why it needs to be inside out? And this is why I, 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 some people say, well, are we going to worry about maybe, maybe living lives that we just do what we want? Right? Just kind of, uh, what, what, isn't there a standard? Listen, I would argue to you that if you focus on the work that God is doing on the inside to make its way to the outside, to inform the way you live your life, that you will live a life with greater victory over sin 
and that more closely reflects the holiness of God. And you want to know why? Because when it's outside in, appearances are more important than authenticity. When it's outside in, maintaining appearances becomes more important than authenticity. And here's what, the, what, produce, what that produces. Instead of a life that's marked by holiness, a, mar- a life that's marked by confession and honesty and humility and transparency and burden sharing and burden bearing, instead of just being real, what do we do? We cover our sin. We keep our struggles to ourselves. We don't tell people about our weaknesses. We don't bring up our doubts. We don't want anybody to perceive that there's any kind of issue. Why? Because I don't want to look like there's a problem. But friend, you're a sinner. You have a problem. A big problem. We all have a big problem. And rather than just playing church, you ought to let God change you from the inside out. And you ought to let what motivates you to do what you do for him is because he loves you. There are going to be some people that don't get that. They try to discourage you. You just keep on going like Paul did. Say, he loves me. That's what's going to motivate me. Right? If we're motivated primarily by the love of Christ, if we're motivated primarily by his grace, then the outside will come. But inside is what matters most. We don't need hypocrites. We don't need Pharisees. We don't need Christians that are burned out and beat up. What we need are authentic followers of Jesus who embrace the struggle, who understand that it's all about the work of God in me. And what ought to motivate me is his love for me. Amen. The Bible tells us that in one example of what it looks like to be motivated by his love is that the inner inner transformation, more significant. Titus 2 verses 11 through 14, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for what? That blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You have been purified. You are a peculiar people. That's not what you're trying to become. It's what you are because of what Jesus did for you. And so now we can be zealous of good works. We can live um, lives of, of holiness that are different and distinct. Why? Because our hope is not in ourselves or anything in this world. Our hope is in the soon return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know what? Things are not great. We live in a sinful, broken world. Jesus is coming again. And he's going to make the wrong things right. And so what can we do now? We can live faithfully. We can live courageously. We can live confidently. Not burdened down with so much guilt and shame, not burdened down with so much pride, but instead simply motivated by this truth, God loves me, right? When, when we're motivated by the love of God, inner transformation over outward appearance, but the last one and we're done. When motivated primarily by the love of Christ, the reconciliation of sinners to a holy God becomes the top priority. He could have gotten so discouraged, Paul, from all that they had to say about him and to him that he could have gotten off track could have gotten distracted from the work. But Paul didn't let that happen. He said, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. I'm going to keep being a witness for Jesus. And he invited the Corinthians to join him in this effort. Verse number 18 and 19. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, but hath committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is Paul's way of describing what we call the Great Commission. Jesus told his disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel, right? Tell them that I died for them. Tell them what I taught you about how to live. That's what it means 
to be a witness for Jesus. And when Paul says a ministry of reconciliation, a word of reconciliation, he's talking about our responsibility, our calling to be witnesses for Jesus in the world. And there's two dimensions to that. The ministry of reconciliation, it's this idea of a work, it's a service. This is talking about the way that our, our life is to bear witness of Jesus by the way that we conduct ourselves, right? Another word that he uses that really brings this home is that word ambassadors. We're to be representatives for Jesus on the earth. And our lives are to point people to Jesus based on how we live them. And so when our life reflects the character of Christ and obedience to his teachings, we are bearing witness to his death and resurrection. When you um, treat others the way you would want to be treated, when you love your neighbor and your enemy, when you forgive, when you take care of those that are hurting, when you feed the hungry, when you clothe the naked, that's when you show, the, uh, that's when your life bears witness to the love of God. And so we want to live lives that are witnesses for Jesus. We want to live lives that people can see us and they glorify our Father. That's what Jesus had in mind when he said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There's the ministry or the, this idea of being ambassadors, but there's also the word. And when we say the word of reconciliation, this is the gospel as theological truth. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. We are to live lives that reflect, that bear witness to his love, and we are to literally, verbally tell people that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for them. When was the last time you told somebody in your life that God loved them? The thought of it is terrifying for some of us. I know that over the last few weeks, again today, they'll probably have these invitations that you can take and that you can give to somebody to invite them to be in church next Sunday for Easter. And the thought of handing it over the fence or giving it to a coworker or bringing up that conversation. But one of the great things about living a life that is a witness for Jesus is that when you live a life that is a witness for Jesus, what you do is you build relationships and you build credibility so that you can, give a you can have a gospel conversation and you've got some credibility with that person. So be a witness through your life and then pray that God would give you courage to actually speak the word of reconciliation. Don't be ashamed to tell people that God loves them, that he died for them, that he was buried, and that he rose again for them. That's the message that people need to hear. I'm afraid that what motivates us so much in our life is other things. Why, why, do we, why do we have so little to say about the gospel sometimes? I'm so, so bold about all sorts of other things. If you were to look at your own social media or you gauge your own behavior in, in, in social gatherings, I've got so much to say about this and this and this. But what about the gospel? You say, aren't there other truths that are important? Absolutely. Aren't there other issues that are worth talking about? Absolutely. But if we're talking proportions, the gospel ought to get more. And so I, I pray for wisdom for you about those other things and those other issues that you'll know what to say and when to say it. But I pray that what our, the message that we, that we want people to hear the most from us is the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for them and rose again. If you're here and you need to be saved, if today needs to be a day of salvation, don't leave without making a decision. He died for you. He was buried and rose again. His grace is sufficient for you. And if you're a Christian, and as we talk about motives and what's really driving us to serve God, if you're honest, that might not, you might not be where you want to be. Today would be a great day to pray and just say, God, you know what? Help me. I want my motivation to be first and foremost that you love me.